so phase five has been delayed. Oh, when I read that, my throat, even though I, I think that's a good decision, my, my throat made that noise my drain makes when I pour soup down it. Ugh. When will this end? <laughs> Believe it or not, the people in Zechariah's day said a, a very similar question. When will it be over? When will this end? Well, Zechariah was a prophet who writes at the time of the return from exile. If you haven't got to that in your uh, classes, this is 520 years before Jesus. And in case you are wondering, uh, let me give a little bit more background to get into this um, subtle text here. You see the nation of Israel uh, under King David and then his son, King Solomon, was split after Solomon because of his idolatry and because of the foolishness of his son, Rehoboam. The southern kingdom continued on after the north was destroyed a couple hundred more years, and then it was defeated by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was, bur was burned and leveled, and the people were carried off into exile. These were all talked about by the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah also prophesied that God then would restore Israel after 70 years. He writes, For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Have anybody heard that scripture read during this time? We like that part of Jeremiah, don't we? After 70 years, God would fulfill his promises to Israel. And the text go on to say that God would bring about his rule, his full promise. And in case you're wondering to yourself, wait a minute, Jesus came 520 years later. Hold that thought. So when the Babylons were defeated by the Persians, and then the Persian kings ordered the return of the Jews back to their homeland, they started rebuilding hoping for this imminent return and restoration of God's rule. They didn't want the past to repeat itself, and so they started doing the good religious thing, and they started fasting. But behind all the piety, things stayed the same. And so God sends Jeremiah, and Jeremiah starts telling the people that he's been having visions and dreams. And so to come to the text that we're reading today, there are uh, six chapters before them, eight visions in total, perplexing and fantastic in its symbolism, and each kind of mirroring the first to the last, the second to the seventh, and so on. Jeremiah dreams of four powerful angelic horsemen returning to Jerusalem, and then in the eighth dream, these horsemen go out and patrol and stand by. Why do they do that? He dreams of the horns of the oppressive nations being dismantled, but then he dreams of a woman being carried off in a lead basket by angels to Babylon, where a permanent place has been made for her. What does that mean? He dreams of measuring the new Jerusalem where God dwells and protects his people, but then the, the, he dreams that there's a flying scroll that goes out and finds anybody who's done wrong to another, who's dealt falsely, and it curses them. He dreams of the high priest of his day, a man named Joshua, being accused in heaven by the adversary, and God comes to his defense, takes his filthy clothes, and restores to him beautiful priestly robes so he can serve his people. And then he dreams of golden lampstands and bowls uh, beside olive trees. And he says, an angel says to him, this is Zerubbabel, 
the governor. This is what he can be for his people if he trusts not his own strength, but the spirit. Reading these, you can't help but ask, when is this going to happen? Has it already happened? Will it happen? How, how will it happen? It doesn't exactly fit into a neat timeline, and more on that in a minute. Then the dreams close with God saying something very strange in chapter 615. He says, this will happen if you diligently obey, obey the voice of the Lord. If, if, that's weird, that can't be right. The future is set and determined. <laughs> the translator probably got the vob wrong. That's my suspicion. Or did they? Well, this brings us to our text today in chapter 7. It says, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharazar and Regemalek and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. And ask the priests of the house of the Lord, of hosts and the prophets, should I mourn and practice abstinence in the fifth month, and uh, as I've done for all these years? Then the word of the Lord came to me, say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth month and the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not drink and eat for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, along with the towns around it when Negev and Shephalah were inhabited? The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress a widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the poor. Don't despise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to listen and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears in order not to hear. They made their hearts adamant not to hear the, the law and the words the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts, just as when I called, they would not answer, says God. So when they called, I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. Thus the land was left desolate, so that no one would went to and fro. A pleasant land was left desolate. That ended heavy, didn't it? Well, my first point is simply, we want to know when all this is over. And that's their question too. The book recounts these dreams, and then a delegation comes to Zechariah and says, hey, it's been 70 years since Jeremiah made this, this claim. God would come and fulfill his promises. Clock's ticking. Hello. We're back, and life is terrible. And let's just assume for a moment that life back then was worse than life over Zoom and wearing masks. It was probably worse. Probably. When they say this, he says, so when is God going to come? Now, how, is, uh, how are these dreams going to take place? When is God's kingdom going to be here? Well, Jeremiah's prophecy looms in the background, and so the prophet brings it up. They want to know. When is this all, the, all going to him? When is God's golden age going to dawn? You might say they want to know whether or not they're living in the end times. <laughs> I grew up in a religious tradition that was uniquely obsessed with these questions of the end time. As a person, I have always loved reading. 
And I read book after book on predictions of the end times. As a young person, I felt deep down that things were just not the way they, they were supposed to be. The world was becoming a darker place, not a better one. And when I looked to a book like Revelation, it confirmed my suspicion that this world is going to end. On December 31st, 1999, my family was vacationing in Florida at my grandparents' condo over Christmas. Everybody was worked up about Y2K back then. Could this be the end? <laughs> Could the computer failure reset civilization? Could the armies of the Middle East rise up? Will the European Union become the revived Roman Empire? Some of the preachers I read said yes. You laugh. I remember asking my dad about this. My dad was a PK, but he had this skepticism about him, but I could also tell deep down he was afraid and anxious. We watched the countdown on TV. Three, two, one, happy new year. The ball dropped in New York and we all, uh, the people began singing, singing their silly Irish songs. People went out into the pool house and the condo complex, ran around with noisemakers. I remember just sitting there looking at the TV with my dad. The reports came in, everything was fine. Nothing happened. The end didn't come. I wish I could tell you I learned a lot from that experience, but through high school, I really just went on to the next prediction, figuring that Y2K prediction was the right approach, but the wrong conclusion. Because after that event happened in my life, something else happened, 9-11. I watched from a big TV in the corner of our classroom in high school, the, plane, the planes flying into the World Trade Center and then the war on terror, and then the war in Iraq. And the books I read again suggested that these were the new enemies, the Gog and Magog now, and not Y2K, but now, now was the real beginning of the end. It certainly felt like it. Already as a young person, this approach became very dissatisfying to me, and perhaps you felt this too, or perhaps you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's fine too. It seems like most, the most certain people were this, that this politician or that terrorist attack was clearly this person in the book of Revelation, this person on a horse, that bull, that seal, that trumpet, that beast, whatever it was, they seemed to be very certain about this, but had make, been making these predictions for decades, one, then the next, then the next. As I read, Protestant Christians have been habitually predicting the end since Martin Luther, who was convinced that the beasts of Revelation was Roman Catholicism. And for 500 years, Christians have been treating apocalyptic literature like a code to crack, and as if this age that we're now living in has provided the cipher, all to be proven wrong time and time again. Anna said it last week, we've been living in the end times for 2,000 years. A few months ago, I was driving to work. I took a different way I normally do, and as I drove, I just admired the farms, the beautiful trees of the Annapolis Valley. Of course, I passed by many churches. One church in particular, which shall remain nameless, struck me. It had a sign on the front, and it was a quotation by the book, from the book of Revelation, indicating that COVID-19 was one of the plagues from that book. And thus, we're in the infinite end times. It also indicated that service was at 10, all welcome. A piece of me really wanted to deface this sign, can I tell you? I wanted to spray paint it wearing a ski mask in the middle of the night. 
I don't know what I would spray paint on it. It's maybe Matthew 25, 13. You don't know the time. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I, I decided that probably wasn't the best idea. I was tempted to call that church up and maybe give them a, a, a piece of my mind. Maybe tell them you'll catch more flies with vinegar, uh, with honey than with vinegar. Didn't think that would go well, so I didn't. As I thought about it more and more, though, part of me just wanted to say, you know, aside for that, time, that sign being in really bad taste, it's a question we're all asking, isn't it? Is the world ending? Because it kind of feels like it is. And if not, when will it end? How will it end? Well, you know, to give these folks some credit, um, all, our, all our, our hearts are feeling the same thing. The foundations of our world is shaking and our social fabric is tearing. And that has led many of us to pray, how long, O Lord? When will your kingdom come and your will be done? Because when we look at this world today, it feels like it's on the precipice to oblivion. My second point is this. The question is really, what does the end reveal about us now? As I reflect on it, that sign probably revealed a thing or two about me, just as much as it did about that church. Apparently, I have vandalistic tendencies that I've never known about. <laughs> I'd want to get to a church. <laughs> Apparently, I'm bothered by other people's theology. That might be a professional hazard. <laughs> Something similar is going on with these visions from Zechariah. An apocalypse is an unveiling, a revealing. That's what the word means in Greek. But it's not God uh, just giving the spoiler video clip to the movie that hasn't come out yet. It's doing something. It's prophetic poetry using fantastic and frightening symbols of fire and flying scrolls, of beasts and bulls, of wrath, angels and dragons. And if we read it literally as it's saying it's exactly going to happen like this, this and this, or we do the opposite and dismiss it as vague mythology of a bygone era, something modern science with its laws of the conservation of energy has disproven, we miss that these, fig these figures are trying to unveil something in us, something that is before us. Books like Zechariah and Revelation are not maps of the future. They work more like postcards and compasses because we so easily lose our way on the journey of faith. Sometimes we're tempted to go our own way and take history into our hands and we think we can build God's kingdom ourselves. All we need to do is maybe fib a little bit here, cheat a little bit there, get rid of those who are in our way. Christian history is full of those examples. Other times, we're tempted to say, Jesus is coming, so we just sit back and do nothing and sit idly by as the world becomes a darker place and we just wait to escape it. We think the end is about fleeing earth to get to heaven rather than living away on earth as it is in heaven. Other times, we fall to despair and say, God isn't coming. There's no hope, and we recede into ourselves, only caring about our little slice of the world we can control, and we just distract ourselves with fleeting moments of pleasure and peace. What's been your temptation during this pandemic time? Have you spent this pandemic angry at others, wishing somebody would do something about them? Or are you just waiting for it all to be over because you're just so done? Or have you just stopped caring? <laughs> I know I fit into, I think, all three of these questions. These visions give us something more like a collage of pictures and mirrors. Yes, they are pictures that point us to the ends of God, the end that God has for this world. But then they, they also function like mirrors, reflecting those right before us, 
letting us see what's going on in ourselves so that we can stay on the right path to God's end. And that's what these visions, I think, are trying to do. And notice then in our text, the move that Jeremiah makes. It's the same that Jesus makes when he's asked about the end by his disciples in Acts 1. The people ask, so when is the end going to come? Zechariah simply turns with a challenge. Thus says the Lord, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Don't oppress the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, or the poor. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another. That's how he answers that question. So my third point is simply, the end is an invitation. We want God to come. <laughs> but then God opens a door and says, okay, step through. The future is a choice and is being presented to us at every moment of every day. And in that way, we're living in the end. Embrace God's future. Live in line with the restoration of all things. Hold, or hold on to your past and the ways of this world. And continue on your merry way that leads to Gehenna's destruction. The choice is before us, and we so often just choose to ignore it. We want to know what is true in this world. We want to know the way it actually is. But then we cling to easy answers and protect ourselves with misinformation and lies. We want a world of justice, but we cling to privilege and complain about the sacrifice it calls for to right that which has gone wrong. We want a world of love, but we're not willing to empathize and forgive those we disagree with the most. We ask God, when will all this pandemic stuff be over? When are, we going, when are you going to bless us and fulfill your promises? And God just simply responds, be honest. Start being kind to one another. Stop oppressing the marginalized of society. Stop hating others. It's simple, but we just don't want to listen. During this pandemic, have we learned how important it is to be honest and pursue sound truth and good common sense? Have we learned through this pandemic just how interconnected we all are? How much our actions affect those around us? How our health is connected to the health of others? And that we're only as protected as those least protected. Have we learned how we are connected to the earth and to each other and how the only way to succeed as a society is to use our rights and our resources to lift one another up? Have we learned to be kind to those whom we disagree with the most? Have we learned that people have more worth in them than their opinions and that no opinion makes a person worth any less? Have we learned to care of the vulnerable of our society, our seniors, those who live in long-term care facilities, our frontline and minimum wage workers who have worked so much more than what they've been paid, those who face eviction and homelessness and unemployment and mental illness and disability through no choice of their own? Have we learned that money can't dictate morality? Have we learned that society stays together because of the sacrifices we can make for the common good? If we haven't learned these things, we haven't learned these things, this might sound apocalyptic, but will society survive another pandemic? Will it survive the next few years, let alone months? <clears throat> When will all this be over? Scripture flips the question back at us, and God simply asks, what will you now choose? 
But the answer is predictably dim and disappointing in Zechariah. He says the people just refuse to listen. And here we are 2,500 years later. We still don't want to listen. Have we learned that much during this pandemic about living the way God wants us to? I don't think we have. And so Zechariah, like many of the other prophets, again, calls continually for repentance and justice, gives words of warning and even wrath. But he always ends with hope. Hope that doesn't depend on us, even though we are constantly invited into it by God's patient grace. He proclaims in a chapter, in chapter 9, Rejoice, O daughter Zion, your king will come to you. Triumphant and glorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey. And then God says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set the captives free. I will restore you. It is that hope that the God who has made this world and made uh, promises through his prophets has come into this world in his son, Jesus Christ. God has become a man, and this man died on a cross because of our failure to recognize and embrace goodness and truth when it was proclaimed to us. And yet, the forces of death and disobedience and destruction and despair did not have the final say over God's son, Jesus. In this, we trust today. Despite our selfishness and stubbornness, God desires resurrection for everyone and everything so that the very force that emptied the tomb will fill every corner of the world, every heart and mind beginning with us. And so we again ask, when will this end? The church knows that it will and simply prays, come Lord Jesus, come. We are ready to step into your kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, you are Lord of history because you have taken the brokenness and darkness of history itself within your very flesh and bore it. And you rose from the dead into a future of hope and forgiveness and joy. Lord, we long for this pandemic to end, but may this be the end of our selfishness and hatred. Put an end to our deceit and ignorance. May this be the final day we tolerate injustice and division. Lord, may a dawn of resurrection righteousness shine in our hearts, in our relationships, in our communities, in all things. May we see something new among us, in us, and through us by the power of your spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.